Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Element. That's spelled L-M-N-T. I love this company for hydration and for electrolytes. And this is something I consume almost every day and also give to my high school kids who are athletes and my younger kids to help keep them hydrated in the hot climate that we live in and with as much activity as we're doing. And I'm really excited to announce right now that Element has made grapefruit one of their permanent options. This used to be a seasonal flavor and it was one of my favorites. And now it's available all the time, any time of year. Here's the thing. Optimal health and hydration really depend on minerals. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but you might hear that quote that we're somewhere in 60 something percent water, but that's not the full story. We're actually essentially that much of seawater, salt water, and we need those minerals. In fact, drinking too much plain water without adequately taking our mineral content into account can actually cause us to be less hydrated, even if we're drinking a lot of water. And that's why I really delved into the research around minerals and have made this a priority for me. I think this is incredibly important for not just hydration, but all the things linked to hydration and mineral balance, including sleep, including exercise performance, including so much more. Element has lots of flavor options for this, including ones that my kids love like watermelon and grapefruit, also citrus, raspberry. They have a whole host of options to help you increase your mineral content and your mineral availability in a delicious way. And you can check out all of their options and get a free sample pack with any order by going to drinkelement.com slash wellnessmama. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash wellnessmama. This podcast is brought to you by Armra, which is a new colostrum I have been experimenting with and had to tell you guys about because you know I'm always on the lookout for new ways to improve immunity and gut health, fitness, metabolism, enhance my skin and hair, and I have been really playing with this new colostrum product. Colostrum is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. But the Armra One specifically is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuild the barriers of your body and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. It strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, and it has anti-inflammatory gut fortifying properties. It can improve hair growth and skin radiance, I've been using it for fitness and recovery and also has a host of well-studied anti-aging benefits. And this one is a premium one, other like unlike other ones I've tried. It's natural, sustainable, and they've done research and testing from start to finish. Unlike most colostrums, which use heat that depletes their nutrient potency, they leverage their proprietary cold chain biopotent technology, which is an innovative process that purifies and preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients while removing things like casein and fat to guarantee that it's highly potent and bioavailable and more so than any other one on the market. They go above and beyond industry standards and they invest in expensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure that they always meet the highest demands of purity and efficacy and are glyphosate free. And for you, for listening, they have a special offer just for you to receive 15% off your first order by going to tryarmra.com slash mama15 and using the code mama15 to save 15%. So that is T-R-Y-A-R-M-A.com slash mama15. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and this was a fun interview for me personally. It's a little bit of a deviation from the focus on physical health, but we go a lot into mindset and I'm here with Mike Massimino who served as a NASA astronaut from 1996 to 2014 and flew in space twice on the space shuttle Columbia in 2002 and on the space shuttle Atlantis in 2009, which are the final two Hubble space telescope servicing missions. He became the first human to tweet from space, was the last human to work inside a Hubble, and he set a team record with his crewmates for the most cumulative spacewalking time in a single space shuttle mission. He is now the author of a new book called Moonshots, which we talk about a little bit in these interviews with him. But I love the mindset and getting to hear his perspective on what shifted for him after viewing our world from an entirely different perspective, as well as the things that his parents did and that he did with his own kids to encourage moonshots. It was a very, very fun conversation. So let's join Mike Massimino. Mike, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Katie, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Well, like I said before we jumped into recording, this is a fun one for me, not only because my kids think you're super cool, but also because my dad used to work for NASA. So I have a personal connection there as well. But for people listening, I guess some people may not know that you sent the first tweet from space, if I remember correctly. Can you share what yeah. that was like? And was that pre-planned or did you did that just happen? Yeah, I sent the first tweet from space. Take that, Neil Armstrong. What ha- and thanks for having me, Katie. It's really a, a pleasure for me to get a chance to speak with you and and uh, and and all the moms listening out there and everyone else and and thank your kids too. So, tell them I said hi and that's very nice. And your dad, thank your is your dad still around? He is still around, retired he now. Yes, actually oh, helps okay, teach cool. my kids physics, so it's fun. Oh man! All right, that's a that's a good anyway. But please thank him for what he did for NASA and, and help. We we went to space on on the shoulders of people like your dad. So please wish him my best. I will. Thank you. So the first tweet from space, did I think about it pre-planned? No, I knew I was going to do it. But I what I, what I relied on was some advice I got from my hero, Neil Armstrong. So I was six years old when they landed on the moon. And Neil Armstrong was my hero. I wanted to grow up not just to be an astronaut, but I wanted to grow up to be Neil Armstrong. I thought he was the coolest guy ever. And I never had a chance to meet him until I became an astronaut. And he came, he was in Houston my very first week and came to speak to our astronaut class. And it was amazing. And the day after he spoke to us, I didn't get the chance to ask him any questions uh, when, you know, we went to the Q&A period after he spoke to us, but I, I didn't get my my uh, my question answered. But I saw him the next day on the food line in the cafeteria. <laughs> so I, I can, I've got to say something to this guy. So I went up to him and introduced myself and, um, and I asked him a question about, about what he said on the moon, Katie. And I, you know, you're way too young to remember this, but when, uh, when, when he landed on the moon, he famously said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I remember I was glued to the TV set as a six-year-old, and I heard that. I was like, I can't believe he said that. So I, uh, so I wondered, how did he come up with this thing? And I, I asked him when I met him, I said, I got something to ask you, Neil. And how, how did you come up with that thing you said on the moon? You know, did, did your wife tell you to say that? Did uh, you hire a publicist? What was, how did you come up with that? And he, he looks at me, puts down his food tray, and he looks at me and he goes, Mike, I didn't think about what I was going to say on the moon until after I landed on the moon. And I was like, really? And, and then he went further and he said, Mike, if I didn't land on the moon, there'd be no reason to say anything. And he's like, okay, I guess that makes sense. And then he got really serious with me, Katie. You know, he's like, I, he saw this as a teaching moment. And he said, Mike, you're new to this. But this is an unforgiving business. This is serious business. You have to take your job seriously. If you get distracted with all the public relations and all the outreach and all the press and all that, it's gonna it could distract you. You can lose focus and bad things happen. Stick to your job first. Worry about all that other stuff later. And he's like, you got it? Like Neil Armstrong, greatest hero ever. I got it. Years later, I get asked by NASA to send this first tweet from space. In our final press conference, I get asked this question, Mike, what are you going to, have you thought about what you're going to tweet? Just kind of what you asked me, right? Did you think about what, and I channeled Neil Armstrong, Katie, I was channeling my hero. And I looked at those folks and I said that press group. And I said, I'm not thinking about what I'm going to tweet in space. We've got to get to space first. That's what we're worried about. If we don't get to space safely, there's going to be no reason to tweet anything. I'll worry about that when we get there. So we launch, we get to space. I set up the computer. My crewmate and friend, Megan MacArthur, is there with a camera to record this historic moment in the space program. And I'm looking at that computer screen, and I realize the advice I got from my hero was the worst advice I ever got in my life. I couldn't think of a thing to write. And then I started thinking, he must have lied to me. There's no way that this guy was on the moon with the whole world listening, and he comes up with something so poetic. And I can't, I'm just floating above the planet. Not very many people know I'm there, you know, the people in the control center do, and family and friends and stuff, but it's not like the whole world's listening, and I can't think of a thing. Katie, you know what I wanted to tweet? I wanted to tweet, curse you, Neil Armstrong. That's what I wanted to tweet, but I couldn't do it, so I wrote the the, the adventure, uh, uh, the, what did I write? I wrote, launch was awesome. I'm feeling great, enjoying the great views. The adventure of a lifetime has begun. And I sent that tweet down to Earth. And then we were doing spacewalks and stuff and paying attention to what I really wasn't paying attention to what was going on on Earth. I was concentrating on the mission, of course. So the Monday, I sent that tweet on a Monday. One week later, I get email from my kids. And I was very excited. You know, all the spacewalks are over. 
and it, it'll go over and there's email from the kids that Monday afternoon. You know, they'd gotten back from school and send me a note. It's like, what's going on down there? And they tell me, dad, they made fun of you on Saturday Night Live. What had happened was then on that Saturday, they, I got made fun of by Seth Meyers on Saturday Night Live during the weekend update edition. What he says is, says, we have the first, he goes, the little bit here that I didn't know this was happening, but I've seen it afterwards, of course. He says, uh, we have the first tweet from space. And here it is. Launch was awesome. So, and then he lets that sink in. Then he goes, in 40 years, we've gone from one giant leap for mankind to launch was awesome. And then Seth Myers pauses and he continues and says, uh, if we ever find life in the universe, I assume this is how we'll be notified. And it has my little Twitter thing. And it says, geez, dudes, aliens, right? So, you make, you know, making fun of me and what I tweeted. I didn't think about it. I just put through that out there. And, you know, anyway, so I, I didn't know this was happening. We're busy spacewalking, but I get this email from the kids uh, on Monday and I look over, I look over to this dad, they made fun of you on Saturday night live. All the kids at school loved it. Keep saying stupid stuff. So that's, that was, I finally got some street cred with my kids and with the, the kids in the high school and middle school at the time. So but that's the story behind the, the that's the long story of the first tweet from space. That's so fun. And if I'm remembering correctly, you also have made cameos as yourself on the Big Bang Theory, which I'm guessing your kids also thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, they, I think they were, we, truthfully, they were not big fans of the show. I think if they were into the show, maybe uh, they would have been more excited about it. Uh but uh, yeah, th I think they thought it was oh, they thought it was okay. I think what it was about the Saturday Night Live thing is that the kids at school thought it was cool, and I got that note in in space. I didn't get I, I don't remember getting such a report about the Big Bang Theory from them, but I, I thought it was cool, and a lot of other people did. And uh, you know, you've mentioned it, so maybe you thought it was cool. I, and people know me more for that than than space travel. Even people at NASA, <sighs> they it's. I was asked a few years ago to speak at um, at at a, at a an event at the at the Marshall Space Flight Center, a NASA center in Huntsville, Alabama, and they, what they told me is they were looking to try to get a cast member from the Big Bang Theory, but they couldn't get a cast member to show up to this event. And uh, would I be would I be able to come? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then like a week later, I get a note. They go, oh, we understand you. You've serviced the Hubble Space Telescope. We're going to have people in the audience who worked on Hubble. I'm like, wait a minute. You didn't know that I, you asked me because you were looking for a Big Bang Theory guy. And uh, you weren't even sure what I did. As Maybe they knew I was an, I don't know. But they knew more about that than than the astronaut stuff. But I think that that's okay. Because it was really a fun show to participate in. And uh, it was, I think, a good thing for NASA. I did that while I was working for NASA. So it, was, it ended up being part of my job. Uh, at, as, and then I did it also after I left NASA a few times. I was on seven episodes total, but that was really a a, a fun a, a fun opportunity and uh, an and in kind of a view into a world that uh, I never I knew nothing about uh, making a, how do you make a TV show and and the creative and fun people. But that was really a, a great show. I, I I don't think all shows are that much fun to do. <laughs> it was just that everyone was happy and just really nice people. Um, Chuck Lorre, Bill Prady, the the uh, the, the um, creators of the show and all the actors and the writers and everyone involved. I, I still have got those friendships from the folks working in wardrobe and the camera people. It's amazing what what a great family of people that uh, that included me uh, as as one of them. Oh, I love that. And on a little bit more a deeper note, I guess you're one of a very very small percentage of people who have seen firsthand a much different perspective of the world we live in than those of us who are like on Earth. And I can only imagine that that was probably a pretty profound experience. I would love to hear any internal shifts you had or, or moments of like sort of profound realization from seeing our world from such a different perspective. Yeah. And I think you've, you've, thank you, Katie. And I think you, you've uh, framed that question really well. The way I like is perspective because you're, you know, we live on the same planet. It's the same, you know, I'm looking at earth, uh, you know, I've, lived my whole life on earth just like everyone else here has right and uh but what you see from space is a different perspective on things and there were two things that really changed that i that i that changed my daily thinking behavior the way i the way i see our home and um our home meaning the planet and the first is just the sheer beauty of it that 
seeing it, it was during my second spacewalk, seeing it from the altitude, we were a bit higher than than other shuttle flights. We were up at where the telescope was at 350 miles. You can see the curve of the planet. And during a spacewalk, especially, you can get this magnificent view. You know, inside the spacecraft, it's pretty cool. Of course, you're looking through a window, but now when you get outside, you know, it's like it's like you're in the classroom as a, as a little kid and you're looking out the window and then you get to go to the playground and the whole sky opens up. That's kind of what it is. Um, being out there and, and uh, in doing a spacewalk is all of a sudden the whole universe opens up and you can see the stars and the moon. The sun is in a black sky. When I looked at it, I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Like a big star in a black sky. The first time I saw that. And then the earth is so magnificently beautiful. And it was on my second spacewalk was I felt more comfortable to look and do some sightseeing and try to get a, an impression of what was going on around me other than just the work I was doing. And um, the thought that went through my mind is, this must be a view from heaven. And uh, this is the view from heaven. This is how beautiful it is. And then I, I dwelled on that for like a moment. And I was like, nah, that's not right. This is what heaven must look like. I felt like I was looking into absolute paradise. And that's what I think of our planet. And I was speaking to uh, Jim Lovell, who is the Apollo 13 commander portrayed by Tom Hanks in the Apollo 13 movie. A few years ago, he was in New York and I got to spend the day with him. And I was talking to him about this. And he said, he said, Mike, you know, a lot of people hope or believe that one day they'll they'll pass and go to heaven because I'm convinced we were all born there. And I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's kind of the way I feel about it. I know that I don't know if that's how accurate that really is, you know, where people have different beliefs and think different things. And but I, I do think that where we live is a paradise and it's very fragile and it's we can't we we have to take care of it i I could look in the other direction and see the look out at the stars and stuff uh, and that's kind of cool out in the other direction looking at this whatever's out there in the solar system you know but we've checked out the neighborhood katie we can't go anywhere this is the only option we have and you can see if you look some photographs even from space you see that thin line above the planet and a thin blue line that's our atmosphere if you look at one of those photos that's our atmosphere that's the only thing that's keeping us alive and the size relationship of that, if you think of an onion, the earth is an onion, that top thin layer of the onion is the size relationship between our atmosphere and our planet. So you can see the fragility of it from that perspective as well. So it's a beautiful paradise. I think we have so many opportunities for, for happiness and to enjoy it. I think we need to take the time to, to look around and be amazed. I got that different perspective in space, but I carry it with me on earth. Um, I was very, very happy I had that perspective, but we can still be amazed down here, um, wherever you are, you, where you're living. If you're near the near the ocean, you can maybe look at that or look at the sky or the clouds or the trees. Or if you're in a city, the architecture. I live in New York City. Even the faces of the people on the New York City subway are amazing. And the, and the, 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 the cadence, the, the flow of, of people, the architecture, what we have in museums and parks. This is unbelievable where we're living. It is an amazing place, and we should try to appreciate every moment we have on this planet. So that was one thing. I have time to tell you a second one? Yeah, absolutely. So the second one that that, uh, that hit me, look, going around the planet over and over again, was my concept in my in my heart, in, in, how I th in my heart and soul and mind, and how I think about home. And I think I've always identified a place as home. Like when I was a little kid, I grew up in Franklin Square, Long Island, a neighborhood just outside of the New York City border in, in Long Island. And um, that was my home. Right? We never, you know, we would go visit relatives in Brooklyn or the Bronx or maybe New Jersey once in a while. But mainly we we hung around that home, that place. And I've spent time in the house or in the neighborhood playing with my friends or going to the park. My schools were there in Franklin Square, my favorite pizza place that I would go to growing up. Everything was there. Franklin Square was my home. And when I went off to college, I always thought, oh, that's my home, Franklin Square. As I got older and as I started traveling around and working after college and so on and graduate school, other places, I would identify myself as a New Yorker, more like, where are you from? I'm from New York. That's my area. You know, New York, New York, the New York City area is my area. As a as an astronaut, you know, now I was in in Texas living there and and uh working for the government, going to the going to work when I was flying in my jets or, or whenever we would do it. And a lot of times I had the American flag on my arm. I travel around the world and I was an American. Uh, you know, when I thought of home, it's the United States was my home. But after going to space, it hit me on my second flight, toward the end of my second flight, looking at the planet, looking at it, I realized that everything I've ever known, everybody I've ever known, 
everyone that's alive now that's lived before that will live in the future is from the same place that I'm from. And that's, that's the, the earth. That's our home. And that's, that's, as far as we know, that's the only place that people are. Maybe there's life somewhere else, but right now everything's right here as far as we know. And that's my home. That's where I'm from going around that planet over and over again, it, going around the planet that many times. It, it, it made me feel that way. And it, it, so what I think of is that we're all from the same place, no matter where we're from, throughout the U.S. or throughout the world, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, where you're from, we all share the same home. We are all citizens of planet Earth. And when I think of home now, I think of planet Earth, uh, a home that all of us share. That's beautiful. And I've only had, obviously, from the Earth experience, but I am very grateful to live in a place with very low light at night because of the turtles in the ocean and incredible stars. <laughs> and I know many yeah. times I have been overwhelmed almost to the point of tears at just the vastness and the beauty of the night sky. And I think there's something beautiful about finding that overwhelming beauty in all the parts of the planet that we inhabit. And so I love how that really seemed to brighten that perspective for you as well. Also from the health world, I can't help but ask, how did your body respond to being in space? Because I know growing up, my dad would talk about, especially people who are there for a long time, the muscle changes. And I know that NASA does a lot to mitigate that, but were there any uh, physical things that changed in space or that you had to overcome when you got back? That's a great question. The, uh, for me, um, there are changes, the, uh, but most of those become rectified when you get back from earth as long as you do the right thing so like for example your spine grows a little bit in space or a little bit taller in space because the spine is kept in place with gravity so our spacesuits when we would go out spacewalking they were configured that they were about an inch and a half longer in the waist ring that we had so you wouldn't get crushed inside of it because they knew you were going to grow a little bit so that leads to a little bit of back discomfort. When you come back from Earth on that one, you, you, everything's going to settle back in. So you don't stay that tall. You you lose that height. And uh, and when it settles back in, you've got to be careful. You're not supposed to pick up anything. The temptation is when you when you land, you want to pick up your kids. You know, they kind of especially when they little, when my first flight, my kids were little. They were like seven and nine years old. And, um, I didn't care. I picked them up anyway. But you're not supposed to pick up any anything heavy because you can your your spine is still settling and and you got to be careful about that. So there's been some some injuries in that in that regard. Um, your inner ear is a, a bit messed up when you're up there because your inner ear works in in concert with your eyes. So we can do things like drive a car, ride a bicycle, catch a frisbee. Where, you know where we need that hand eye coordination and and being able to run and and do things without falling over. Walk. You know, it all works together. And in space, that goes away because the inner ear works on gravity, the vestibular system. So now you don't have that working for you. So it was really weird because, like, I would go up. When I first went upside down in space, you can float and do whatever you want. But as soon as I went, I went upside down in space, uh, I felt like the whole room had rotated. Like, I was still straight up and down. My eyes, my eyes are, my inner ear is telling me I'm perfectly still. So when my eyes see this going on, which I'm, I'm moving my hands now for those of you listening, and you go upside down, it was if, no, you're standing perfectly still, but now the room has rotated 180 degrees. That kind of freaked me out. Uh, I also threw up my first dance because it's this conflict between your eyes and your inner ear is kind of like being, if you've ever been seasick or airsick or car sick, it's a conflict between your inner ear and your eyes that, you know, you might be in a car trying to read. Sometimes it could elicit that feeling of nausea because your eyes are saying you're you're steady, but your inner ear is saying you're moving around. So what in space, it's the kind of the opposite reason. Your inner ear is telling you perfectly still. Your eyes are telling you you move your brain, you're moving around. And that also can lead to sickness. It happened to me on my first flight, not on my second. I think my brain remembered. And that's the thing to remember here is that your brain can adapt to all of these things. Um, and it figures out where you are. Like you, your, your liquid kind of pools in your upper extremity. You can get a little stiffness in your head you could also have the tendency to be dehydrated because it's, it's telling you have more water than you need um so you have to drink a lot when you first get there but the brain kind of figures all that out um the 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 when you come back you know the inner ear is spun up again so you're off balance a bit you feel like i felt like i was going to fall over so you can't drive a car fly an airplane do anything like that for a couple of days until you get checked out from the flight surgeon so that ad adaptation back takes a couple of days the biggest health concern um for uh for long duration flight flights longer than mine a little there was some concern with mine is that by floating in space it's kind of like you're on bed rest 
uh, like super bed rest because you're not doing any, just your muscles aren't necessarily working at all. And unless you do exercise, that's when bad things can happen because your muscles can atrophy. Um, your your heart muscle can actually shrink if, if over a long period of time. You can lose uh, bone density mass, which is not good either. So we want to keep your muscles and bones strong. So the way to counteract that is exercise. So we exercise every day in space. It was it's even more critical for those who go to space for longer periods of time. But exercise is really good. I I think, uh, Katie, of course, as as you know and and talk about, it's not just for your physical well being. In this case, you had to do it, but also for your mental well being. It was always good just to get that 30 minutes on an exercise bike. Try to fit that in somewhere is what our goal was in space. Work up a sweat, you know, and and feel better about it. You know, you, you can't go for a walk like or you know, do things in a in a regular gym like we could on Earth or however you might try to exercise at home or wherever. Um, but we would try to make use the tools we had to to do that. So um I think that was important for both your physical and mental wellness. And just to throw out another thing for your mental wellness that we had was was connections with home. Like the email from my kids, that was great. You know, uh, just getting a note from them or from my wife or from friends or family, you knowing that that they were still there. And and these this connection to the planet is really important. I think, like for example, when we got to the to the pandemic phase, it reminded me of a lot of space flight. When I was in quarantine away from my family or in space away from my family. They're a world away, but they were still there. And I think, you know, the way we're communicating over distance through Zoom or whatever, whatever app we use these days, I think that allows us to to try to maintain those that wellness and that that feeling that of of connectiveness uh, with our friends and family and coworkers. So that was also a part of it, is that 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 mental wellness that was just as important as uh, any other type of wellness we might be concerned about. Well, that's a perfect springboard because I talk often on here about even the physical benefits of community and that Mm -hmm. often overquoted idea that you are sort of the sum of the five people you spend the most time with, but really highlighting how much community is vital for our health as humans and how loneliness they're now saying is more dangerous than smoking because we have that need to be in community. And I feel like this dovetails with something I've heard you talk about, which is sort of the myth of the lone genius. And I would love you to explain that a little. Yeah, th- thanks, Katie. Uh, I, and I, I think that we do things together, and the idea that we can we can accomplish things and be happy by ourselves. I mean, may, people. Some people don't need to be around people as much. Or they might be more introverts or want their time alone, and and I think that that's that's great. But as far as like trying to accomplish things in life, um, I, I don't I don't see how you do that stuff alone. Uh, you need people to help you get educated and trained and give you encouragement and. The, especially in today's world, it is uh, it is so complicated that we can't do it alone. And you know, raising kids is, uh, you know, I know you have a lot of kids running around over there. And that's not an easy thing. You need help to do that. It's it's uh, I, I think it could be a bit overwhelming if we think we're we're doing things by ourselves. Or we think we should be able to do it by ourselves. I, I don't think we should we we shouldn't hold ourselves to those standards. I think we should. Think of it as that I, I need I need help uh, every once in a while, and this this concept of team, of how important that was. I I think I've realized more recently that that was something that was always inside of me um, when I was a, a kid. I still have my my friends from when I was in kindergarten, or some of my best friends still, and my friends from growing up in elementary school, high school, college, and so on. I always liked having a team around me of friends to help with personal issues that I could help them with their personal issues. Um, and we could, were we working in school together or on a, on a team together. And uh, I think we, we, a, a lot of us are grown, growing up that way in community and neighborhoods and families and so on. And, and I, I think it's important to remember to continue that because you can't do it alone. It's a really complicated world. When I, when I first arrived at NASA, I was very concerned about this swim test I was going to have to take because I wasn't a strong swimmer and I didn't like the water very much. But once I was selected, I was informed that I was going to need to pass a swim test in order to go through water survival training. And I needed to go through water survival training with the Navy in case I ejected out of an aircraft. We were going to fly high performance jets with ejection seats and parachutes. And if you land in the water, you're going to have to survive until they can come get you. So you had to go through this survival course also for the shuttle. The space shuttle was a bailout situation. If you had an emergency and you couldn't make it to a runway, you were going in the water. 
So you're going to bail out of that thing and and come down in a parachute. And you had to be able to to survive until the helicopter comes and gets you. So um, that was a, something we had to do. And I wasn't a strong swimmer. I showed up at NASA with a lot of practice, and I thought I could pass that test, but I thought I was going to seem like a real goofball. You know, here I am. I'm going to around all these high performing people, and I'm just a goof. Uh, how's this going to turn out? And uh, at the end of our first week of of administrative stuff, uh, we were uh, we were about to go home for the weekend. It was mainly our first week was mainly admin meeting. Neil Armstrong came to visit. That was cool, but we were going to start our training in earnest the next the second week. And so at the, that Friday afternoon before we went home, Jeff Ashby, a Navy pilot from the class ahead of us, was kind of helping us understand what we were going to do for our training and uh, leading us through that. And before he dismissed us, he said, uh, I want to remind everyone that uh, our, our training starts on Monday in earnest, and our first event will be the swim test. <laughs> How about a math quiz? Can we do something else? How does it have to be the swim test? And he goes on to say that, uh, he said, yes, yes, who are the, by a show of hands, who are the strong swimmers in this group? And a few people raised their hand. We had some Navy qualified divers and other people that raised their hand. And then he goes, okay, uh, more important, who are the weak swimmers in this group? And I need to know. Don't lie to me. So I raised my hand. You know, I knew I wasn't a very strong swimmer. And he said, okay, anyone who didn't raise their hand can go home. But the weak swimmers and the strong swimmers stay after class. And you're going to arrange a time to meet over the, over the weekend at a pool because the strong swimmers are going to help the weak swimmers with their swimming. When we go to the pool on Monday, no one leaves the, no one leaves that pool until everyone passes the test. And uh, that's that made me realize that we're I'm in a different world now, right? It's very blatant that we think maybe we can do things on our own with the astronaut business. There's no way you can you can't. It it is too much going on that you have to take care of each other. Your life depends on the person next to you, and your success depends as a team depends on each other working together. And um, that was my introduction to that. And and more than that too, I think Katie is that. If you well, if you're good at something, you need to help the others. You could be Michael Phelps and set a world record in the pool, but if one of your classmates failed, you failed. So you need to help the the, the people you can help when they need need your help. But I think also part of that to me, which is I think harder to admit, is when you need help for the sake of the team, for the sake of your own success, you need to get help. And if you're having trouble, if whatever that might be, if it's a you know, if you're out on a out in a field exercise and you hurt your knee, for example, you need to fess up and say, hey, my, you know, I, I think I did something in my back or my knee or whatever it might be, because you're going to slow the team down and your team can help you. All right. Give me your bag. I'll, I'll carry your pack. I'll help you out. And but you need to admit it. And you would actually get in trouble if you didn't admit those things. If you were didn't admit you weren't feeling well and you couldn't do the job or you weren't prepared because you didn't understand a certain concept or you were worried about whatever it was. That also affects the team. So the only trouble you would really have is when you didn't admit that you needed help. It was important to admit it and to be willing to accept that help. And I also talk about like knowing who to go to, having that mission control center. When I was in space and I made a mistake that I thought there was no way to to, to save the day, I reached out to the control center and they gave me, they came up with a solution. It was when I was working on the Hubble, I stripped the screw. It was a really stupid move. But they were able to come up with a solution. And I think about that. They were a world away, but they were able to help me. So I don't, you know, this idea that we can do things in today's world by ourselves, I think that is a myth. I think that we're, it's, it's not that we're not smart or capable or we should have not have confidence in ourselves. I think that's all important. But I think it's also a realization that we're in this game together and we should give help when we can. And I think people, I think, have the tendency to do that. But but don't forget when you need help to reach out to your control center and be mission control for others. Be that person they can come to, but also reach out when you need help. You know, life, I look at life as an open book test. When you need help, go get it. I think that's actually a very relevant reminder for moms, especially because we are often the control centers to use the analogy for so many yeah. people in our children, our households, mm -hmm. friends, and often have trouble asking for help. So I think that's a, a perfectly resonant reminder for moms who are listening as well. And now I would love to talk about your new book, Moonshots, because I loved the concept of this book. I love the message of this book. I think as a mom, I read it with the lens of helping my kids build a framework for being willing to take on um, exciting adventures in their own life. But what inspired it for you? I would guess, of course, your experience in space, but something felt important with bringing that message to, to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. So what was the impetus for, for Moonshots? 
Well, thank you, Katie. And I'm glad you, I'm really uh, very grateful and very flattered here that you like the book because um, that's exactly what it's supposed to do is help people with with whatever it is, with family, with work, whatever. And, and that that's why I wrote it is that you know, I was just a regular, I, I am, there's nothing special about me. I worked hard. I had people help me along the way. Um, I tried to seek out mentors that were going to help me. And but there's nothing special about me. I am the opposite of what you think might become an astronaut. I, I, I realized when I was eight years old that I was afraid of heights and scared of most things, and I was never going to become a fearless test pilot like Neil Armstrong. That idea of when I started to realize what those astronauts really did, was like there's no way I'm doing that. And I was, you know, this this skinny, scrawny kid growing up. I couldn't see very well. My eyesight was bad. I ended up getting medically disqualified from NASA because of my eyesight, and had to go through vision training to to uh, to improve that. And get requalified again. I mean, it was always, I'm not that, you know, that what people might think astronauts are, are. And I think actually a lot of them are like that. They're just regular people. But there are lessons that I learned along the way and people that helped me um, and things that happened and that I learned mainly from other people. Some I discovered and kind of made up on my own of rules of how to do things, guidelines that not only got me to the astronaut office, that was only part of it, you know, getting that job, getting that degree, getting that opportunity. What happens when you're given that opportunity? What can you do to be successful with that opportunity, whether it's, you know, with your family, with raising the kids or whatever it might be, what are some of the things that you can do? And, and I learned so much. I kept my eyes and ears open and learned so much about those things, those lessons that some of we've talked about in perseverance and in leadership and in teamwork and in speaking up and in being amazed and enjoying the 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 beauty around you, um, dealing with change, there there all these things are are in the book and what they are are lessons, some of which we've talked about today that I wanted to share with people. Because if I could pull off my moonshot, you know, the title of the book is not I physically going to the moon, but it's about, you know, this idea that your moonshot is whatever dream you might have in life, whether that's personal or professional, somehow I was able to pull it off. And I still, I look, I'm mystified of how all that happened in some ways. And I wanted to share that that with people, because if I can achieve my moonshot, so can you. And uh, that was really the motivation here is to collect these, these stories that have resonated, that I found with audiences that I speak to over the years. What are, what are my top 10 lessons and let's get them written down with the stories behind them, because this it's kind of like a guidebook uh, of things that I learned be, before, during, and after the astronaut ex, uh, program um, of, of how to achieve impossible dreams, of, of how to do things that might be intim intimidating to you, of, of that are going to be difficult. And anything worthwhile is going to be difficult, and you're going to face failure and rejection and bad days and good days, and, and all these things are going to happen to you. How do you deal with it? How do you get around those things? That's why I wanted to share all this, these things that that I had learned over the years with uh, with who, whoever thought they they either needed to help with developing their moonshot or or achieving it. And I'm curious if anything stands out to you from your own childhood that your parents did that helped encourage your mindset and your ability to stick to it when I'm sure things got difficult at various times and or anything that then translated into raising your own kids with a framework and a mindset to be able to achieve their own moonshots. My parents, uh, both both were very smart. My mom was really smart. Um, she was like like the smartest kid in, in school where when she was growing up. But she did not have the opportunity to go to college. That wasn't. You know, she was. A, her parents were from Italy, and and uh, she grew up in Brooklyn. And you know, college was not on the horizon for for her or a lot of women her age at, at you know of her of her time. And uh, my dad also uh, grew up on a farm and, you know, he went to high school and was a very smart person and a good student, but never had the opportunity. His job was to go back home and work on the farm. His parents were also immigrants. So they grew up with a little opportunity to, to get a higher education, but with big dreams and wanted to encourage me and my brother and my sister to, to get an education. And to try to fulfill whatever we wanted to do. Cause I think they felt like they were held back and they didn't want their kids to feel that way. So they were very encouraging. Um, the other thing is that my, uh, my mom was pretty much a, a stay at home mom. When, when, we, when the, we were all out of the house, she went and uh, worked in a, in the uh, senior center in the cafeteria. Um, my dad, 
his job was uh, he had a few different jobs and then primarily his career from the time I was born pretty much onward until he retired was a was working for the New York City Fire Department and um my neighborhood was this working class neighborhood where most of my friends parents didn't go to college most of them worked in like what we would consider doing service for others um the guy next to me was a New York City police officer our neighbor next door the person across the street was a was a Nassau County detective across the street but we had people working in these different jobs where they were helping people and and it was part of something that was bigger and i think that was the other thing that that stuck with me of that to you can look at trying to make a lot of money maybe or fame or whatever it might be but i had the sense that and i still believe this that i think that's in some if that's all you're looking at it's somewhat unfulfilling and that what you really want to do in life what i learned from my parents was do something that is meaningful whether it's you know in raising a family or or having a job where you're helping other people or you're doing something to make the world a better place you might not make a whole lot of money we didn't make a lot of cash as astronauts but we certainly felt that we were part of something bigger than us that we were doing something we loved that we were part of a really close-knit team and that community was in my mind as a little kid with both with my family and with my friends in my town and the way my parents were active in the community and raising us i think that was instilled and i searched i really wanted that as an adult and i found that in the astronaut office a way to be part of a community a way to to help each other be part of a great team of people that with us with a focus to do something that was together we could do something that is bigger than us and i think again that can relate to your personal life and also to your to your professional life and i, I that came as as we as i'm doing more of these interviews and thinking about the book and where this it really comes from them it really comes from my mom and dad and my family and my neighborhood that they they put me on the right track to uh to do the things that that i that, were, that was my moonshot and um i don't know i don't know i don't realize that when that was going on <laughs> but now i certainly do so you get full credit i love that i also had parents who are very focused on finding a way to help other people and now with my own kids as an entrepreneur i try to weave that into the way i raise them but i tell them a lot like if the whole point of starting a business, or if you're going to be an entrepreneur, look for the places you can help people or the problems you can solve that help people and build from there because that's going to feel fulfilling. And also I believe income follows outcome. And if you just chase income, I'm with you. Yeah. If you just chase yeah. income, you won't be fulfilled and you probably won't achieve as much in the metrics that you might look at. Whereas if you're focused on helping people, I really do believe that mm -hmm. income will flow from that and that your needs will be taken care of. I'm with you a hundred percent. I think the money comes. I think you, you have to look at what you love doing, what is your purpose? And you need to figure out a way to make a living at it. But but I think if you're doing what you love, what what your passion is, if you can do that, figure out a way to make a living at it, that, that money will come. And you asked me about my kids. <clears throat> so I've got I've got two two of my own, and I've got two stepkids now. And everybody's in school right now, Katie. Two the two stepkids are both in college and and my kids are in grad school. My my daughter's in grad school in his school of social work she's trying to help people my son is an engineering grad school he is he is looking to uh, he's interested in the space program we'll see what happens there but but i i don't i don't think i think by showing by example and and i think now that they're older which is kind of interesting i think that that was instilled in them that they they just saw what i was doing maybe kind of like i saw what my dad and mom were doing um that they they saw their parents kind of engaged in those types of jobs and community and i think that's where it seems like i don't want i hope they're not listening to this because i don't want to because you know i don't want to mess them up i try to stay out of it whenever i can katie it's the best thing i could do usually is just try to support as best i can and, and try to do try to do what i think is right and maybe they'll notice but uh but always try to encourage them and, and i'm thrilled that everybody's in school i think that's a good place to to try to pursue a dream so but uh, but that I, I agree with you 100. percent I, I think you said it perfectly that if your focus is trying to make money or become famous or whatever it is, you're not going to get there. And the best thing to do is to follow your passion where you can be of service to people. And that money, I, I, you have to have confidence that money will come. It'll be success. That's what'll make you successful. Yeah, I love that. And like you, it seems like we have a similar approach with our kids where I don't want to interfere. I always say they're their own infinite autonomous humans, and I'm not here to direct who they are. I'm here to support them in discovering who they are and who they can help, not to guide that through my own motivation. Yes. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, well, I love that. And I know so many things stood out to me in the book as well. I love the the kind of story-based approach to it. It's such a fun read. I'd love to touch on sort of rapid fire a few of the things you talk about. I think they're such valuable tips. One is about harnessing nervous system energy for motivation. I talk a lot about the nervous system on this podcast and how it's kind of a barometer. And if even if we mentally feel fine, you know, if our nervous system doesn't feel safe, we're not going to rest and digest and heal. And it's so intricately connected to everything. So I love that you talked about this as well. Can you talk about what you mean by harvesting nervous system energy for motivation? Yeah, I, I think that I, I I think that if you're nervous about something, that's a good sign. That's the first thing they made because it means that it's important to you. And I find if I'm nervous about you know, it was about a space flight or or uh, you know a, getting a training flight or a simulator or an, an exam I was taking in school or I don't know if I thought about this when I was in school this way. <laughs> I wish I wish I would have, but I'm like, all right, I, I'm nervous about it. But I, this is what I learned as at NASA is that I'm nervous about it it's because it's important to me. And I've spoken to some athletes about it. And there's a baseball manager, a friend of mine, uh, Tony La Russa, who I think has more base wins than any other manager. And I was visiting with him before a game uh, last year. And and he looks at me. He was at, we were in Yankee Stadium, beautiful sunny day. And he and we're, I'm, we're talking. And, and he goes, you know, Mike, I'm really nervous. I go, you're nervous. You've managed like th- more games than any anybody. What are you nervous about? And he goes, I'm just nervous. You know, it's a game. He goes, and, and, I, and then we talked about this, how nervousness is good. And he uh, he said there was one time there was a young pitcher who who he was going to start his first game in the major leagues. And Tony said, how are you feeling? Are you nervous? And the kid said no. And he said, no, you're not pitching today. Because if you're not nervous, you're not ready. So that's one way to, to think of it. But but you want to you want to use that nervous energy, uh, I think, to help you prepare. All right. I'm nervous about this. It's it's good because it's it's important to me. But but I'm also in my, in my case, I thought of the way it came work for me was that that's how I better get ready for this thing. And I bet, you know, I want to think of everything that can go wrong uh, or, and, and try to be prepared if there's, you know, if I'm on a spacewalk and something, what, if this happens, that happens and try to build that confidence. Like we're going to take a test, you know, you, you, if you're nervous, that's good. It's good if you're nervous ahead of time, especially because then you can prepare, right? So if you use that nervous energy to help you prepare, and then when it's game time, whenever that means, whether it's the event, it's the, it's the pitch you're giving, the presentation, the game you're playing, the test you're taking, the social event you're attending, or whatever it is, you know that whatever that that the that discussion with the kids, whatever it is, now it's time to trust in in what you've done to prepare, trust in yourself, trust in the the, the network of people that might help you if you if you're gonna need that help, trust the the gear, the the tools that you have, whatever it is. If you're going in to make a pitch and you're gonna be using a piece of equipment to help or whatever it might have trust in everything because you're ready and you're prepared. And now it's time to execute and try to try to have that trust. You know, confidence is a, is something I, w- I wish I had more of maybe, uh, but I, I feel like, all right, I can trust. I, I looked at it as trust as something that I can, I, I trust the people I'm with. I trust my equipment. I, I trust my training. I wouldn't be in the, my name wasn't picked out of a hat. I'm here for a reason. And it took me a while to get to believe that, but we need to believe that in those situations and then try to execute our plan. And you mentioned a little bit about being scared. One, I never, I, I had, I was never in like scary situations, like really scary situations where I thought I was going to get maybe killed or hurt very often in life. And, but in, as an astronaut, I did, there were certain, certain times we had an emergency one time in a jet where we lost our hydraulic pressure, which means you can't fly the airplane. We only had about 20 minutes to get it on the ground, if that much, and we were getting ready to eject out of the airplane. Luckily, we were able to get it on the ground. But that was a scary situation for me, like, holy cow. And then uh, another situation, spacewalking, looking at the spaceship before the launch. There were certain times where I was like, uh, and what I realized at that those moments was that being scared is a luxury that I can't afford right now, that being scared is not going to help me. It's not going to allow me to think clearly. It's not going to help me make decisions. I do not have time for that. And I just blocked it out. And I never thought I could react that way. But that, that was the case because I could not afford to, to be scared. I, I had to have my I had to have my focus on what was going on or else something bad could happen. And not all situations are like that, right? Hopefully that you're not, oh, you know, this is really bad. But I think a lot of our life is like that where we we're in a scary situation. And I think Try to look at it more as nervous energy to get you ready. And when you're in the moment, don't be scared. Have that trust. Have that trust in what you've done to prepare, and 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 execute the plan. And have and trust that you're ready for whatever that whatever that experience or opportunity is. 
because getting getting scared in the moment is not i don't think is going to help is that what you found as well yeah and i love that reframe of that when you're nervous it's pointing to something important rather idea if you're nervous that that means you shouldn't do it because i think often we can get scared and decide not to do something because we're nervous that's not good yeah and i also think it touches on not defining emotions as bad like not just saying oh i'm nervous this bad thing this is a great messenger this means this is important to me this means maybe my body has some hesitancy but i can still do this i think a smaller example where i've seen this in my own life is things like when i've had to have difficult conversations realizing i'm nervous because this is important to me or this person is important to me and it's only scary until you do it like the ryan holiday idea that the obstacle (laughs) is the way that often the cure to the nervousness is to actually do the thing not to avoid it and if we resist it it tends to build And I think that's another valuable parenting lesson because certainly our kids will have moments where they feel nervous or fearful and we get to be a guide for them through those situations as well. This podcast is sponsored by Element. That's spelled L-M-N-T. I love this company for hydration and for electrolytes. And this is something I consume almost every day and also give to my high school kids who are athletes and my younger kids to help keep them hydrated in the hot climate that we live in and with as much activity as we're doing. And I'm really excited to announce right now that Element has made grapefruit one of their permanent options. This used to be a seasonal flavor and it was one of my favorites. And now it's available all the time, any time of year. Here's the thing. Optimal health and hydration really depend on minerals. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but you might hear that quote that we're somewhere in 60 something percent water, but that's not the full story. We're actually essentially that much of seawater, salt water, and we need those minerals. In fact, drinking too much plain water without adequately taking our mineral content into account can actually cause us to be less hydrated, even if we're drinking a lot of water. And that's why I really delved into the research around minerals and have made this a priority for me I think this is incredibly important for not just hydration, but all the things linked to hydration and mineral balance, including sleep, including exercise performance, including so much more. Element has lots of flavor options for this, including ones that my kids love like watermelon and grapefruit, also citrus, raspberry. They have a whole host of options to help you increase your mineral content and your mineral availability in a delicious way. And you can check out all of their options and get a free sample pack with any order by going to drinkelement.com slash wellnessmama. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash wellnessmama. This podcast is brought to you by Armra, which is a new colostrum I have been experimenting with and had to tell you guys about because you know I'm always on the lookout for new ways to improve immunity and gut health, fitness, metabolism, enhance my skin and hair. And I have been really playing with this new colostrum product. Colostrum is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. But the Armra One specifically is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuild the barriers of your body and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. It strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, and it has anti-inflammatory gut fortifying properties. It can improve hair growth and skin radiance, I've been using it for fitness and recovery and also has a host of well-studied anti-aging benefits. And this one is a premium one, other like unlike other ones I've tried. It's natural, sustainable, and they've done research and testing from start to finish. Unlike most colostrums, which use heat that depletes their nutrient potency, they leverage their proprietary cold chain biopotent technology, which is an innovative process that purifies and preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients while removing things like casein and fat to guarantee that it's highly potent and bioavailable and more so than any other one on the market. They go above and beyond industry standards and they invest in expensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure that they always meet the highest demands of purity and efficacy and are glyphosate free. And for you, for listening, they have a special offer just for you to receive 15% off your first order by going to tryarmra.com slash mama15 and using the code mama15 to save 15%. So that is T-R-Y-A-R-M-A.com slash mama15. You also talk about why it can be a good idea to wallow in regret for 30 seconds. This is another a little bit like countercultural one that I would love for you to expound on. 
Yeah, uh, it's it, what's interesting here, Katie, is you're, you're putting like a, a, a what I find a very interesting academic spin to a lot of these things that I just learned by walking around, you know, being making mistakes and you know, flying airplanes and stuff. But uh, this is this is really cool. I'm enjoying this. Uh, the 30 second rule. Okay, so I had you know what I would find when I would make mistakes. Um, you know, I think some people deny their mistakes. You know, I, I think most people I think most people are not like this. Um, but there occasionally you might can think of someone that just didn't, I never did. I, it wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. It's you or someone else, you know, and the deniers, right. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's like really two categories here, but, uh, but the other category that I know about is my category, which is I just beat myself up. And when I would fail things, I, and I failed my qualifying exam my first time when I was trying to get my PhD and I was able to retake it and and pass it the next time, but I beat my. I was like, "Oh man, this was horrible," and I wallowed in the misery for like a long time, like for days, a week, until I was able to pull myself back out of it. Or you get bad news, or something happens in your personal life. I mean, you know, when it's, you know, I'm not. There are things that happen, like a, a death in the family. That's you know something different. I mean, but I mean, like when you make a mistake at work or or something, or you just whatever mistake you make. I mean, a relationship, whatever it is, and um, you 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 oh man i should why did i say that why did i do that and and you could you could make a mistake that leads to regret as i said for days or a week or more and you never get that time back you just don't it's it's gone and it doesn't change anything you're still in that same position so i would and, and in space you don't have a minute to to do that you know you make a mistake and like oh crap well, now what you know what you can't wallow in the misery you've got to be an active participant in the solution and you so I would hear people saying, I'd hear this in sports a lot too. Like when you make a mistake, leave it in the, in the past, leave it behind you, let it go, you know? And I'd be like, Oh really? But it's terrible. What I did was terrible. So the, how do you, the, the way that I found was best for me and for a lot of us that, uh, that I work with as astronauts was this 32nd rule that I learned from my friend, Megan MacArthur. This is the second time I've mentioned her. I need to give her a phone call apparently. And uh, she's on my mind. So Megan, and, and she learned it from a guy named CJ Sturkow, who is a Marine uh, test pilot who taught it to her, but she taught it to me and it's give yourself, it's a 30 second rule. Give yourself 30 seconds of regret. It is okay with this rule. Now it is okay to be mad at yourself for something stupid that you did. All right. So that's okay. You know, you, I didn't mean to do that. It was a mistake. That was bad. And you can take 30 seconds to beat yourself up. So when I made a mistake, trying to uh, working on the telescope which was a terrible bonehead maneuver where i stripped the screw because i was a bit, being a bit careless and i i, I said, oh, you know how could i've done this and i took my 30 seconds and i i said to myself you're the worst astronaut ever how could you have done this why did they even put you on this flight they should have given someone else's this, this you this is way over your head why did you think of that beforehand? Why did you think that that's that's we should have prepared differently? Now look where you are. We'll never find out if there's life in the universe, and it's your fault. And you're you know I you know just don't vocalize any of these things. Just keep it to yourself because if people hear you, they get scared. So I had my thirty second rant, and then I got it out in my head, and I'm like now it's in the past. It's officially flushed. We're gonna forget about it. We're not gonna do that mistake. We're gonna learn from it. We're not gonna be cavalier like I was with the tool any longer. That's the takeaway there. That's not happening again, but it's in the past and we're going to move forward and try to find a solution. So that's, that's what's been helpful for me and for many of my, my colleagues. And I think the value there is you're actually giving a voice to those emotions rather than fighting yeah. them. So again, with the, what you resist persist, but also there seems something psychologically helpful in the structure of that, of like, there's a time limit, it goes away and now you can let it go. Um, I think I've had many recurring lessons in my own life about letting go rather than holding on to certainly negative mm -hmm. emotions, but, but many yeah. things. And I've done something similar as a mom on the really overwhelming days. I will set a timer for five minutes. And my goal in that time is I'm going to feel as stressed as possible. I'm going to feel all of this stress Ooh. and worry. <laughs> and then when that five minutes is up, I'm going to go get solution focused and I'm going to solve it. And it's something about that structure is so comforting. And so I love that you've used this practice as well, even in space and what is much more high stakes than the, you know, the things I encounter on a daily basis. But I think that's a really helpful, tangible tool that people can use. I know we're talking about the book. I'll, of course, make sure it's linked in the show notes for you guys listening while you're driving or walking. Um, so you can find it there or anywhere books are sold. But for the last couple minutes of our conversation, I would love to circle back to something we talked about early on, kind of that 
impression you had, the perspective of being in space and how it sort of led you to find awe in the ordinary, I think this is worth um, returning to because I, I firmly believe that one of the best things we can do in life is to cultivate that wonder and that awe for everything to get overwhelmed with the beauty of life, of with nature, of relationships. And I think it's something that as a mom, I see kids are so naturally attuned to, and perhaps we lose a little bit as we get older. So what are some ways that you personally find awe in the ordinary and cultivate that in your life? I uh, I actually, I find that I need to to take a, a cognizant, um, deliberate time out to do it. And I find that um, if I feel myself getting a little stressed, which happens to everybody, and I wouldn't say that the things that you're doing as a mom is less stressful than what I learned the high stakes is the, you know, that was only a telescope. It was only the future of astronomy. It wasn't necessarily, you know, your life or livelihood, but a lot of times, <laughs> so anyway, uh, but um, but I think I, I find that I need to sometimes like really stop myself and say, hey, wait a minute. Let's just look out the window for a minute. Let's uh, look at let's um, look at a picture of my wife on the phone. Let's let's uh, think of something with the kids. Or, or but but look around. Look around. Even the the stuff you have in your apartment or home. Uh, and that's 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 what really helps me. You know, I I live in New York City, and uh, and I when I get out, especially when I get out the front door, um, whether it's wherever I might be, if it's uh, if I'm traveling somewhere or. If I'm at home and I get out that door, I just try to take a moment and look around and say, this is unbelievable. At the beginning of the day, I just say, this is incredible. You know, and in, in the city, there's just this all this motion. If you're out and we also some, spend some time in a, in, a, in more of a country fried setting, like we're going to be for Thanksgiving and we open up that front door and there's trees and a lake in front of us and like, oh my goodness, look at that wonder. And But in the city, you opening up the, the, the door and going out on a street and looking up at the buildings and the cars and the bus and the people. And the park in the distance, or whatever you might be able to to see, it's it's just wondrous that we have this opportunity to, to be here and to meet people. The, 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 what people can do, I mean, we take so much for granted. Even like like artwork, I can't. You know, that's something I really can't do, right? But I can wonder and see how how could people do this, or even the buildings. I don't know how to build a building. I mean, I kind of understand how it's done because I'm an engineer. But I I'm lucky. I mean, this place I'm sitting in now, I had nothing to do with it. You know, someone else built this thing. It's, it's a wonder that what people can do with their with their time and their skills and by working together. And I, I think it's really important for us to remember that because we're only here for a visit. Um, when when uh, one of the experiences I had living the planet, orbiting over and over again at, at the speed we go. We, so we go at 17,500 miles an hour. That's our velocity in space. It takes 90 minutes to do one complete orbit. Um, out of that time, about half that time is in sunlight, beautiful, bright, pure white light, the sun in space above the atmosphere. It's so beautiful. And part of that time is in complete darkness because it's nighttime on half the planet, right? So half your time's in bright sunlight, half your time's in darkness. You get 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets in a 24-hour period. And when you're coming into that sunrise, for example, you feel the warmth of the sun like kind of in your down in your bones, like a cold, uh, like a, a warm current in the in the water, if you're in the ocean or something. Anyway, but you feel it before you see it, and you come around the corner, you see the sun in the black sky, and you look back down at our planet, and you see a line that divides night and day, and what and it moves, and it's it's moving steadily, and what that is, we call it the terminator, and, and it's you know we think the sun rises and sets, the sun doesn't go anywhere, the sun stays where it is. We're the ones that are moving around the sun, and we're also rotating. So a sunrise, it's not that the sun's coming out tomorrow. It's the, the earth is going to rotate toward the sun tomorrow. You can count on that. And looking at right, we know we can count on that. But when I saw that, and I saw this line moving across the United States in this one particular instance, about to illuminate California, and we're just kind of like over Arizona, coming over California, this line, we call it the Terminator, was moving so steadily. It it had the, the the word that came to my mind when I was watching it. The rotation of our planet was permanence. That this has been going on for billions of years, well before my my parents and grandparents and anyone, well before any of us were around. And I had the sense on top of that, Katie, that it's going to be going on for a long time after we're gone. This cosmic dance of things 
in our universe and the motion of our planet and all the activity that takes place on it is going to be going on for a very long time. This is our time. This is our blip to enjoy what we have here. And it's so precious to be here that we can't waste a moment of our of our time here doing doing bad things or things that aren't good, whatever that means. So we, I think we should take a time out whenever we can every day to just be amazed by where we are and how lucky we are to be here and that this is our time. And we're, you know, in your case as a mom and my case as a, as a dad, I think more as I'm getting older, that I'm going to be leaving, <laughs> right? At some, I don't want to think about that, but it's, you know, it happens, right? And what we leave behind is, is really important. And what, what, what is more important than than our kids and the people we affect and students or whoever we influence. Um, because that, that, that planet, it didn't hiccup. It didn't hesitate. It's going to keep rotating and that's, it's going to be keep orbiting. And this, this, this whole thing that we we're, that we sometimes take for granted of where we are and how lucky we are to be here and so on, that's going to continue well after we're gone. And we need to do the best to enjoy it. I think, and to help the folks who are still going to be around to continue to make contributions after we're gone. So beautiful. I have a thing I try to remind myself often, the idea to just be here now, because truly the present moment is all we actually have. And I think if we savor that and stay present to it, we see the beauty in, in, in that moment more easily. I actually even have a tiny dot tattooed on my hand that is representative period at the end of a sentence. And it reminds me to savor everything as if it were the last time I would ever get to do it. And I feel like that brings me so much focus and presence. And that in that moment, it's easier to see the beauty in my kid's eyes or the beauty in the trees or, and really like soak up mm -hmm. that present moment. So I love that you talk about that as well. I think that's such a, a very important reminder and would definitely encourage people to check out the book as well. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes, but Mike, this has been such a fun conversation. I'm so grateful you were here. Thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you very much, Katie. Thanks uh, to everyone who's listening. Hopefully uh, uh, some of this was helpful because uh, that's what it's intended to be. And I just enjoyed it. You're awesome. Thank you so much. I've, I've learned so much here too, even though I was kind of jabbering the whole time. Thank you very much for having me on and for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here and for sharing with us today. I'm so grateful for your time. And thanks, as always, to all of you for being here and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.